You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. This is Violet Luca, digital editor of Film Comment. And this is Eugene Hernandez, deputy director of the Film Society. On this week's episode, we're recapping last month's Cannes Film Festival, which brought myself and several colleagues to the south of France to watch this year's selections of the best in world cinema. We'll start with Film Comment's roundtable, in which a group of esteemed critics discuss the best and worst of this year's festival. After that, we'll hear my conversation with director Jonas Carpignano, whose film Mediterranea screened in the festival's Critics Week sidebar. For our first segment, we'll be going to Film Comments Roundtable with esteemed international critics Alexander Horvath from the Vienna Film Museum, Charlotte Garçon from Paris, Scott Foundus of Variety, Anton Dolan from Evening Moscow, and Film Comments' own editor, Gavin Smith. The discussion took place at the conclusion of the festival, just after the awards were announced at the Palais des Festivals. The top prize, the Palme d'Or, went to Jacques Odiard's Deepan, which tells the story of a trio of Tamil-speaking exiles from Sri Lanka trying to reconstruct their lives in France. As you'll hear in the conversation, the choice was a bit of a surprise, because although the film was well-received, it was far from the critical favorite of the festival. Even so, Odiard received a standing ovation when he took the stage to accept the award. The Grand Prix Award went to the Holocaust drama Son of Saul, the debut feature of Hungarian director Laszlo Nemes. The film follows a Jewish prisoner in the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp as he attempts to bury a child he believes to be his son. Jonathan Romney described the film as, quote, brilliant because, formally and thematically, it completely rethinks the Holocaust film and the whole question of whether you can represent the Holocaust, whether you should represent it, the question there being a taboo, and if you stage these horrific events, whether you can show them at all or not. In other big categories, Taiwanese filmmaker Hu Shen won Best Director for his martial arts film The Assassin, while the absurdist comedy The Lobster by Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos took the jury prize. Before we go to the roundtable, it should be noted that this was not recorded in a studio, so the sound quality isn't pristine. Nevertheless, it offers a rare, fresh glimpse at the critical buzz of the festival. You can read the full conversation online at the Film Comet blog. Well, I would say, one thing I would say, you know, ODR winning the Palme d'Or is that finally he's won the Palme d'Or, and that seems to have been like a collective effort yeah. of the festival and the French film industry for, I don't know, as long as I've been coming to Cannes, every... Uh, I guess beginning with the film he made after Beat That My Heart Skipped. Read My Lips? Yeah, I think everything, has, before, everything has been... So the one after Beat My Heart Skipped is a prophet. Really? I, I have a feeling that... Yeah, the, but he won the prize re, read my lips. years ago for yeah, an yeah. old tight describe. Read yeah. My Lips and uh, My Heart Skipped, uh, both film were in Berlin. Yeah. Ah. So well, Khan started. Uh, well, it was uh, 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 an, an before it was uh, uh, a very humble hero. Yeah, self-made hero. So, so yeah. three three consecutive films of his have gone into competition, and finally he's got what he wanted. And the festival, presumably, on some level, has got what he, what yeah. it wanted. Except I mean, there are filmmakers who've competed many more times than him. I mean, Ho has been here many more times, and, and times. has not yeah. won a Palm. And Deplachan has been here more times and not won anything. So. In a way, I mean, ODR is not necessarily even one of the, what you would call, most favorite of, of Cannes, you know. Uh, yeah, but I think that when you, when you kind of dig deeper into the relationships between, you know, the head of the festival and the company that produced both the Depleshin and, and the ODR and the, uh, the company that, uh, I guess... Is selling them. Yeah, uh, there are connections between these three guys that, that that go back a long way and that seem to be related to playing football. Um, and this year, the decision was to to shunt the Depleche in, well, to to offer it certain regard, yeah. uh, which was which was declined. Um, it's a very weird it's a very weird kind of thing, the dynamic that seems to be at play, and uh, I. Somehow, ODR always seems to be the favourite. 
Well, he won the Grand Prix for profit, and you know he's an accessible filmmaker. And look, it's obviously it's a big boost for this film to get the Palme d'Or because it's an incredibly uncommercial film. It's a Tamil language immigrant drama with no stars. I mean, the only selling point is ODR's name, which doesn't mean a whole lot outside of France. So, mm. you know, for whatever it may be worth, and we know that but the Palme d'Or doesn't even mean that much when you look at the box office of Winter Sleep, of Uncle Boonmi, both in France and elsewhere in the world. But, you know, uh, it's certainly going to mean more that Deepon has this prize than it would for, you know, a film that has more going for it, like Carol or, you know. What about The Assassin? Well, even The Assassin. I mean, The Assassin has already been sold in a lot of territories, uh, uh, apparently on the basis of Wild Bunch putting together a sort of canny sizzle reel of the action scene. Because <laughs> it was bought for America by a company that basically specializes in Asian genre films. Yeah, well go. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. But I, I want to come back to Anton's point about the... Uh, the films that were in Asserts and Regard, and you were saying that too, uh, Pichet Pong and Keishi Kurosawa um, and Nomi Kawase. I mean, I think it's complicated. On the one hand, uh, only Kiyoshi Kurosawa won a prize from the <coughs> Asserts and Regard jury, so mm. they passed over these films as well. And I think that Nomi Kawase, I think it's pretty well known, is not a favorite of Thierry Frémaux, but is a favorite of other people on the selection committee and is one of the reasons she's been here so many times, I think she's now the most shown Japanese filmmaker ever in the history of Cannes, which is kind of remarkable considering that she isn't very well known. Hmm. More than Imamura? I think she wrote that or said that somewhere. I yeah. haven't verified it, but um, uh, but I, I and I but I, I think it's more surprising with a Pitchet Pong, and I think it's especially interesting that. All these movies we're talking about, Pitchet Pong, Kayoshi Kurosawa, Arnaud de Plachin, Philippe Garel, Miguel Gomez, that all these movies preferred to be in Cannes somewhere rather than go wait for Venice. I think it's actually a kind of unfortunate reflection on Venice's decline in the world, that, that all these movies felt it was more important to be in Cannes somewhere rather than waiting for the fall. Better to serve in heaven than rule in hell. Evidently. So that, that's one, I think, takeaway from the, the festival this year. And also, yes, I think that there's a real resistance to putting super challenging, let's say, art films or avant-garde films in the competition. They've, they've you know, periodically put something out of left field like Pedro Costa. Maybe we were talking about this the last time. I think we were, a bit, but, yeah. but I think they're just very, very reluctant to do it. And... Uh, and it's unfortunate because, again, those films then tend to just get seen by the people who are already interested in seeing them. Because if we think about the more mainstream kind of press that's covering Cannes, they are basically following the competition and maybe answers in regard, but not really trekking that much down to the Fortnite and the Critics Suite. Um, you were a big fan of um, what you one of the films that you spoke about being one of the better films in competition was the Sorrentino, which both Scott yeah. and I... God. <laughs> yes. Both Scott and I found truly right. excruciating. Um, but this was a year in which three Italian films were in competition, and that's the first time I've experienced that. There's usually one of those guys yeah. who's in competition, whether it's Moretti or Sorrentino, or um, sometimes it's been Bellocchio, uh, yeah. but this year... Garone. Uh, so... I don't think this suggests that there's some, you know, ferment, uh, it's that, that Italy's sort of becoming a creative hotbed again. I mean, I think it's just that there are these outliers that... that it's a coincidence that three uh, Cannes filmmakers made new films uh, yeah. the same year, and uh, coincidentally, and very interesting, I suppose, that all three films are in English language. I mean... Or part. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Moretti is of course Italian but we have John Tortura as the yeah. biggest star and the center of, uh, of a film actually yes. the comic relief and the best thing in it for me and uh, uh, I think the experiment uh, made by Sorrentino and Garone both are not completely successful but interesting again and uh, that's the main reason and the coincidence of being made in the same time that they are all in Cannes. It's not a renaissance of Italian cinema, clearly. It's uh, just uh, such a moment.
But all, all three of these filmmakers are also kind of people that are in the Cannes Club. We were talking about that um, at, at the first roundtable we did. That but last year we had a great Italian film which won the Grand Prix, Lord Viker Meraviglia, which was oh, yeah. a, a newcomer. A newcomer, she but she's in the club now. Yeah, well, uh, well deserved, uh, really. Yeah. She has a discovery. Yeah. And last and year, I think that was the only film shown on a 35 millimeter print yeah. in Cannes, and this year was Son of Saul. Actually, I, be, I believe the only one discovery we have this year in competition is Son of Saul. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, everything else, it's nothing new. We can say that good films, bad films, but nothing really new. Yeah. And uh, Son of Saul, still it's a new name and a new style and a new energy. Uh, possibly you can love it or hate it, but uh, it is an energy. I didn't like the film, as I said, but it... I can feel it. But it's very rare to have a first filming competition. I mean, I think we maybe also discussed that the last time. That you, I don't think you typically look to the competition to make discoveries because so many of no, the... No, but sometimes know, it happens. Yeah, once in a blue moon. But one thing that is... That I, I, my, my sense is that over the years, certain regard has gone from being a, a place for discovery to a place that's some discovery and a dumping ground for films that they don't want to put in competition for whatever reason. It's, so it's sort of diluted the purpose of certain regard. It's, it's no longer the place where um, people go. To, they, they go there to see the films by the filmmakers they know, and there's maybe less attention paid to kind of taking a chance on somebody unknown, maybe a first film, maybe a second film... Um, that seems to be a way in which the festival has, has sort of um, cannibalized its own structure a little it's, bit. And maybe, I'm sorry uh, to intervene, maybe it is one of the reasons behind the decision of uh, Isabella Rossellini jury not to give prizes to Cavasse, Apichapong, to well-known directors and to give them to new new people. Yeah. Except that they did give something to Pornboy. They did give yeah, to Pornboy, yes. I think they basically picked films... They, I mean, the, even the Porn Boy, by his standards, that's a pretty accessible, it is. easy it is. film. I think they went for movies that worked on them emotionally, as juries often do. I mean, I watched that Icelandic film, and I was just baffled. As how anyone could think that was the best film in that section, just mystifying. You know? I liked it. Yeah. I don't think I it's the best, but yeah. yeah. Your turn. No, no, I agree about the fact that Un Certain Regard has become the number two competition or a dumping ground, as you said, as well as discoveries and a mixed bag for that. Mm. But it's just because I think just too many auteurs make their films mm. for Cannes. And they like, just can't in the say, terms that you were saying, say it's no. a coincidence this year that three major Italians making a film. No, it's not a coincidence. Everybody works with the target of Cannes in Europe and then you have a you have a traffic jam um, so we have to they have to put films wherever they can it's no yeah. pun intended yeah. I mean. I'm just curious if, uh, what movies you would like to have seen or rather what movies you'd like to see attention given to or prizes given to that weren't uh, uh, well, Apichat Pong for me and then Deplechin and Garel I talked about but maybe uh, Minervini The Other Side thought it would have been an interesting Un Certain Regard award. But yeah, I, I mean, um, I think it's an interesting, but for me, somewhat problematic film. I yeah. mean, I, 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 it, it was, it was a, a lively talking point on the documentary jury, which I was on, and we admired a lot of things about it while also having some questions about the gaze of the film at certain points, you know. I mean, it is certainly one of the only documentaries in Cannes that's formally interesting, And he's certainly an interesting filmmaker, but uh, and it's a big. Uh, it's a, it, it, this is the first year that there's been a documentary jury. Yeah, that's the equivalent of the camera door jury across all the, across, across all, all the sections. Except that, of course, there really are very few documentaries shown in Cannes that are not documentaries about cinema. I mean, of the 14 films competing for that prize, 10 of them were in the Cannes Classics mm -hmm. section. Um, so I think that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice idea, and hopefully in the future it will encourage the different sections of Cannes to show more uh, what we might think of as theatrical quality uh, documentaries. Although they've been in, in competition, there have been documentaries, but they've mostly, been direct, mostly directed by Michael Moore. Yeah, yeah, never Frederick Wiseman, you know, never the Maisels, uh, you know, uh, I think, yeah. Uh, You can go way back, there was Jacques Cousteau or something 50 years ago, and then Michael Moore, and uh, I don't know if anyone else really. 
It would have been nice to honor the measles or something like that. You know, There's a new film. Screening. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't have been a world premiere though. I can say uh, one more thing that uh, besides Inside Out, uh, I had another very strong emotional impression. First of all, uh, from Khan Classic, actually. It was a uh, uh, world premiere of uh, not the new, no, not the latest, but the only oh. posthumous Oliveira film. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that. I think it's, uh, again, a masterpiece. Uh, uh, this is not a good film. This is a great film. And in a way, it is documentary. Uh, it is a film like some of Oliveira films, which really refuse this uh, dividing films into documentaries and feature films. It's uh, really his acting in it, uh, not as an actor, but as Oliveira himself. And it's all a portrait of his house. And it was too personal for him to show to anyone because uh, he did it when he was uh, 73. He was sure that he will die soon. So he said in, uh, uh, to director of Cinematheque that uh, they should uh, show it for the first time when he will die. So it was 33 years afterwards. And now it's somehow absolutely new film. It feels fresh in a strange way. And it is a historical document. Uh, when we see almost young, as the, as the almost young man, someone who, who we knew like uh, after he turned uh, 100 years. I, had, I, I was lucky enough to, to do interviews with him uh, two or three times in Venice uh, because I speak French and it helps sometimes. Uh, and uh, he was an amazing man uh, and amazing director, of course. And I think it's a pity that they didn't uh, make a, some special presentation and big premiere in Lumiere or Debussy. Still, I understand it would be maybe hard to, to explain to, to all people uh, which are following uh, the new films, why it's so important, why it's interesting. It but was, it's a real anomaly, and it, yeah, I did. It's like one of, one of the reasons <laughs> why they uh, organizing these festivals to support this kind of films. And, and I think they what sort of, I believe. I think they sort of buried it by putting it in Cannes Classics. A lot of people didn't even yes. know it was screening. And it was screened at an odd time, you know. Yes, nine o'clock uh, near the end of the festival. Yeah. But in, but I, I agree with Anton hundred percent. I mean, I think it was one of the truly great films. You know, it's a jewel. It's a, a film it, on the level of Hoshashen or Todd Haynes or you know any of the, the the really you know the better films of the competition and just like all of the best of Oliveira's very playful, uh, very con contemplative of man's place in the cosmos and uh, you know the passage of time across. I mean, you see these fa fantastic family photographs. You see Oliveira as a child. Uh, and uh, what was it about the film, though? There was some implication in recent in years past that there was something about the film that he it was too personal that he didn't. Well, want it's extremely personal. It. I mean, it's in a way that it's the ultimate home movie. It's a movie about his home. Yes, but it's also a movie about his whole life. You know, mm. and. Um, Maybe we should come back to Carol because that's a film everybody um, likes and expected it to get a, a rather more significant price than, you know, one of the one of the, the effectively the co-star of the movie getting a prize. Except that I think you always have that, like the Coen brothers themselves, you know, uh, with the No Country for Old Men. You know, you often have a kind of Hollywood-style movie that is either totally ignored by the jury or gets a kind of minor prize because. We've all been on juries, and we know that you always come to this discussion of, well, does this film really need a prize? Mm. You know, and should and that really be a factor, though? Well, I, but it just isn't it ultimately about all, shouldn't awarding, be, but, but awarding it is. Uh, it shouldn't be, but it becomes a criteria when you have more films that you want to award than you have awards to give. Mm. You know, and also people come in with different agendas. You know, because some people want to vote for political reasons or. That, you know, things having other to do than what is really the best film, you know. I completely agree, but it's humiliating to have only a half of actor price uh, next to Emmanuel Berko for this film. <laughs> it would be better to not, not to give anything, <laughs> in my opinion. I really believe it. So, yeah, so yeah wait, do we get to talk about Mon Because, I mean, to me, that was just like watching some horrid soap opera. Yeah. But yet, you couldn't disaster turn, movie. that you couldn't turn yourself away from, because it just... Maybe I like those kinds of films, but I really, I really didn't find the film objectionable. I, I mean, I felt the uh, in certain ways they were, it was quite nuanced, and I, I thought it had some interesting insights about 
um, the complexities and, 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 and the complexities and difficulties of, of relationships between men and women. I thought it had some you know, fresh insights to give. It, all of that embedded in, uh, yeah, I uh, very overacted or semi-histrionic kind of treatment. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think of what insights are in there I didn't think it was a dumb film. I didn't think more. it was a dumb film. I really didn't. I, 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 it's super I, unbelievable, <laughs> no? I didn't find it that unbelievable. No, I, 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 I think what was clunky about the film was the intercutting of you know her relationship with this guy with her knee recovering metaphor. from a the knee, knee injury. The metaphor of the knee. Yeah. Je nous. Yeah. Je <laughs> I mean, you know, I thought that, that, that it's not an auspicious that. beginning at all. Yeah, that was um, unfortunate. That was unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, but how many movies have we seen about like the charismatic loser? And the woman who keeps wanting like to believe—that's that, the signification of lies. You know, I, I, no, I think. I mean, this is. I think she thinks she's making a woman under the influence, or we won't, we won't grow old together, <laughs> or something like that. But it's it's like this kind of tawdry, superficial version of a real relationship movie. Or the, to the as I was saying, somebody compared it to me to Claude Sauté, and I mean, it's just like when I saw it, I, you were offended Claude Sauté that. is turning yeah, his grave that somebody yeah. mentioned his name. Well, I mean, you <laughs> you make a very convincing case, but I, I mean, my way may win, may win. May win? No, my win. My win, not my win. My win. Is uh, a, a, an anomaly of some sort in French cinema. I, when in I saw human, her. In human history. When I saw her receiving the award for her first film here, and the, she had like, literally a meltdown on stage. Yes. I mean, they practically had to kind of sweep her up and like put her in a sack to get her off stage. That was one of the most grotesque things I've ever seen in. in, in any award ceremony anywhere except maybe you know some of the more sort of outrageous things at the academy was and I had I don't know if I I hadn't seen police at that point but I thought wow this woman is a real hot mess uh, you know what uh, what is this film going to be like and the film just really uh, doesn't reflect the personality that made it very much I mean I thought police was Perfectly serviceable. I, I didn't. You are so kind. I, to well, me, the two movies are totally the same. I mean, police is this absolutely hysterical melodrama. Yeah. If the police behaved that way in real life, they would all be rounded up, and there would be a public scandal. I mean, every there's <laughs> film of totally unethical behavior from beginning to end, and 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 then this you know suicide at the end that's so ridiculous. I mean, no, to me, the two movies are on the same like. Way, yeah. way maybe, off maybe, the charts. Maybe, maybe you can tell us about the status of May Wen in in French cinema. No, How did she get to be where she is? No, I, I, I agree with you. There's something in that histrionic um, quality that is that makes her special in this like autobiographical or autofictional um, cinema. I don't think she really had. Has such references as Piala or or Cassavetes. Or Cassavetes. I think she's she's playing the card of like instinct and all that, mm. and I think she believes it, you know. But that doesn't make it good. That makes it to me what I appreciate. Sincere. Yeah, sincere. Makes it sincere. And what what I like in what she does is the the margin of 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 acting that she gives to the actors. It's the silly, latitude. But the the yeah. latitude, yeah. It's the fact that you really see them understanding that somebody's giving them that and they're really enjoying it. And uh, it's almost obscene. Maybe giving, maybe giving them a little bit too much latitude. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And what, what do you think about Chronic? Or oh, you discussed it. Uh, chronic. Yeah, we didn't play. discuss Chronic. I also thought that was... Uh, I think the film... Quite terrible. Yeah, yeah terrible. Terrible. And the screenplay is terrible. I mean, uh, I think it's a good performance in a movie that's is kind of the. To me, it was. I think like Can almost seeks out to have every year some example of this kind of sub Carlos Regatas, sub Michael Haneke theater of cruelty. Uh, no, not so cruel, cruel. That's uh, like a medium cruelty. Well, the level of it is really not. But, but the, this not shocking. This whole, the, this whole kind of the self-consciously distended style of it, you know, the, 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 it felt so arbitrary to me. How long 
a shot would be, you know, and it's just, yeah. I, I, and, 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 you know, it has one of the most ridiculous endings totally as everyone's talking yeah. about. Yes. And I actually blinked and missed the ending. Yeah. I just looked away for a second and then I had a boom. <laughs> I mean, to me, but, but it has something in common with other prize winners here like Helly and, uh, um, well, I mean, I, I actually, I like the, very much the regatta somebody that he won the prize for, the, the, the post Tenebris looks, um, but it, this reminded me of like Battle in Heaven, you know, because it's just one miserable tableau after another, you know, of people in extremis and suffering, and <coughs> with no discernible point. No, well, no, I, there, no, I, I don't quite agree. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you go no, first. No, I think there is a point. I don't like Austrian, Mexican school films <laughs> in general, <laughs> you know, pigeons um, and, and all that. Um, I, I thought this one, though, with the maybe it's silly, but the idea that we get at first that he may be a serial killer or some kind of stalker um, is, is kind of interesting. It's not gratuitous, I think, because then you the whole film questions really why somebody would have would have it as a call to help others. It cannot be empathy because as a it's calling. not yeah. as a calling. Yeah. It's not like in Mia Madre where it's their mother. So obviously you yeah. gotta bring her to to, 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 to till the to the end you're gonna be by her bedside. But it, it, I think the film questions why somebody would care for people and wipe their the shit out of their It's a business. No, but it, it, no, it, no, it's questioning... No, no, it's for him. Yeah, yeah, it's questioning that. And in that way, I think it's interesting that the screenplay makes you wonder whether he's a pervert, he's a he's But I think he, he is a sociopath. And, I mean, he and does he, he may be. go around pretending to be other people. And, and that's he, just a liar. That's not a sociopath. I don't know. You know? I, I, and, and the film kind of plays up on that. He's kind of pervert, I, I believe so. It's not a sexual pervert, but uh, in a strange way, he's not normal. Of course, but I him uh, that's not a point. Well, uh, when you're 95 and shitting on yourself, maybe you'll yes. be happy to find somebody to who's abnormal. Take care of exactly. Probably, I, I, I just <laughs> feel that uh, it's very constructed, all of this. It's contrived. It doesn't yeah. feel real. And for me, that's a proof that it's a bad screenplay. Because uh, you, you can feel uh, how self-conscious in this film, how he's working on it. How it's it's a film. He's trying to make a film, and actually, I have the same problem with the uh, Son of Saul, which is much better as a filmmaker. Yeah. But also, it's it's a filmmaker. You're watching filmmaker, not a real story. You can feel something too. Uh, yeah, that's for me. Mm. I, I mean, I, I'm a little bit more in, in Charlotte's camp on this film. I, mean, I don't really I have no enthusiasm for the film at all. I didn't once think of Hanukkah or Regardos or any of the reference points that you brought up, although I think they're valid. Um, I thought I never thought this guy's a serial killer or a sociopath. I thought this was a guy who had lost himself in a uh, a way of uh, in, in a kind of work that is incredibly demanding, and and I think people that go into that line of work have probably got issues to begin with, and that's what the film demonstrates. Ultimately, as his backstory is gradually pieced out, we realize that, you know, he, he lost a child, and it, it, it seems fairly clear the, that he... The single most overused narrative. <laughs> yes, yes. That, I mean, I mean many, you don't let me finish. You don't let me finish. You jump in as if I'm, you know... Right, like to I think that the ultimately, you know, when we when we get the the revelations and the and the sort of psycho and the motivations that are driving this behaviour, they're pretty banal, mm -hmm. and uh, we've seen yeah. it all before. Um, but it withholds that sufficiently that you are kind of fascinated to watch Tim Roth, you know, moving through this story. I mean, I think I think well, he's, he's, I think he's yeah. well, he's not always a great actor, but I think this is one of the best bits of work he's done in many years. And it's, you know, very low-key, it's not showy, it's not, a, it's not melodramatic. Um, his performance or the movie? Because I think the movie His is performance, very, the movie is I'm talking showy. about his performance. Yeah. I think the movie is showy in its, un, in, in its own particular, in sort of wallowing in its own particular aesthetic. But, um, I, you know, I found it to be a disturbing experience at times, and um, I think it, there's a lot of ambiguity in that character. And and what that character's you know motives and behaviour uh, consists of, uh, the fact that it turns out that there's a there's a very clear personal motivation doesn't really change 
some of the ambiguity. I mean, the, the business with the guy who he, who is watching pornography and he's then I think unjustifiably accused yeah. of, of 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 some kind of sexual harassment. That's a really interesting passage in the film, I think. Um, I, and you are left wondering, well, what what didn't we see? We're left wondering just how bad was that that he basically let this guy. I mean, he comes in, the guy's watching porn, and he says, seriously? I mean, he's not condoning that behavior, yeah. but he's also not... Actually, into... that actor is very good, too. Yeah. The actor who plays that yeah. uh, patient, because uh, he has sort of this very acerbic I... attitude towards... Is it his... a pleasurable film? In no way. <laughs> no, but it's it's not that. I mean, because I, I don't... Uh, that's not a deal-breaker for me. I mean, I love <laughs> Hanukkah and a lot of regattas, so <clears> it's <throat> not that I'm saying it's an unpleasant film, but it's a... <clears throat> I just thought it was incredibly self-conscious and yeah, without much to say. That's fair. Very artificial. But, uh, but I, th- I want to come back to the idea of the, the, this kind of, um, like this sort of metafictional quality to, to, to Mont because that seemed to be sort of a through line in the competition, you know, that like that movie and the Guillaume Niclou movie and the Sorrentino movie are all to some extent predicated on the idea of actors playing characters that are either based on themselves or based on the filmmaker and they all have these kind of narratives about being famous, about making a movie, about you know this lifestyle and I have to say I found it, maybe it was the cumulative impact of the three movies but I just felt so toxic to me at a certain point that mm-hmm. we're at a film festival and we're watching movie after movie about the bubble of this world, you know, so that when something came along, like the Stefan Brise film, that was so much about, like, looking at society, looking at people that are not typically the subjects of movies, and, you know, and even the ODR film, which I think is totally an uneven film and not the best of ODR, but I can actually understand, even for the jury, why a movie like that might have seemed like a real breath of fresh air. Well, I I totally appreciate his, his immersion in a completely alien culture yeah. in, you know implanted into France and I, I, I thought those three actors were, were terrific yeah especially um, when you consider it's, it's like the first performances I mean the, the main guy was in one Indian movie no was, he's a big theater actor. yeah but, but in film film performances mm. you know she's a theater actress was her first film performance mm. you know and they're very they're natural the camera loves them and mm. you know. but I just I think that, that you know one wants to try to psychoanalyze the jury you know that uh, uh you know, they seem to have gravitated more towards, let's say, humanistic kind of films rather than formalistic films. You know? mm-hmm. Okay, well, we, could, we should stop here. Yeah. We should stop. So. Thank you, Anton. Thank you, everyone. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films, get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news, share with friends via social media, create your own custom schedule, and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program. For part two of today's Cannes recap, we'll go to my conversation with director Jonas Carpignano, whose film Mediterranea screened in the festival's Critics Week sidebar. The movie's about two friends who make their way from Burkina Faso to Italy and, once they endure the challenge of crossing the Mediterranean to get to Europe, face discrimination when they arrive in Italy. The subject matter of the film is quite timely given the recent deaths of migrants traveling from Africa to Italy by boat. Nearly 2,000 people have died this year alone trying to make the journey. But I began my conversation with Carpignano by asking him how he came to the film's subject matter, which resonates with recent racial tensions here in the United States. Talking with Jonas Carpignano about Mediterranean, I'll start with the subject matter. There's a profound moment in the film in which characters are chanting, stop shooting blacks, stop shooting blacks. For anyone watching the movie at this moment, it's uh, impossible not to think about what's going on, particularly in the United States, if you're coming from that perspective, although others will be viewing it from other perspectives. Um, Can you speak to where this idea came from, first of all, and then we'll talk about uh, how it 
speaks to a particular moment, at least in the United States? Um, initially, the, um, the impulse to make this film was um, to talk about immigration in Italy. Like, it's a subject I've always been very, very interested in. I, um, I grew up a little bit between Rome and New York, and um, my mother's African-American, and I was always very, like, conscious of sort of race and, um, you know, the, the status of black people in Italian society. So I'd always wanted to make a film down there. Um, and when the riot happened, I sort of thought it was a perfect lens to tell the story. It was like the first time the immigrant population um, had spoken up for himself in this way, like in this manner. It was the first like a race riot in the history of Italy. So I thought it was a perfect occasion to like go and make the film. Um, and then from there, it just sort of like kept snowballing. I got to know more and more people. And, um, you know, the, I started to learn more about the entire situation. And that's how the short film sort of became Mediterranean. So if you don't mind, share a little bit more context about um, the specifics of this particular riot and then what elements of it you explored as you started crafting these, developing these characters and crafting this story. I mean, the, you know, the newspapers sort of misconstrued it to be about um, a shooting. And it was certainly at the time... Um, that's what, that was a spark, essentially. That was the thing that started the riot. Like, people had heard that a couple of young immigrants were shot by some local boys. It's almost a sport. Um, and they sort of, like, you know, obviously, they reacted in the way they did. It was like, you know, hundreds of cars were burned. Many immigrants were injured. And it was, like, total chaos um, in the small town for the first time. Um, but what, for me, what it really is about isn't so much about the specific shooting. Like, for example, like in the film, it's not like someone we know get shot you know the decision to do that was sort of the show that um when you feel invested enough in a place the way like the a lot of these african immigrants do now you feel like you have to um stick up for yourself more than you ever did if it was a more of a transient thing if it was a way station on their way to another place you could imagine that that sort of momentum never would have um reached that sort of like boiling point but instead it did and i think that's indicative of the fact that you know the the, the landscape in italy is changing like there are going to be African immigrants and black people living in Italy from now on. Going from a short film that explores some of these issues to a feature film that explores more of these issues, tell me about that process of evolution. I mean, it really came through um, getting to know the lead character. So the lead character in the short film is also um, Aiva in the feature film, and he is like the inspiration for the film. Like He and I had met um, to shoot the short, and we immediately became very, 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 very close. And we moved in together. And he started telling me more and more about his experience and about his story. And that's when the film started to sort of open up. Like, once I realized that, like, through him for the first time, um, I felt that, like, you know, we could show exactly what the immigrant experience was. It was, um, um, it all came from there, essentially. It's all based on his life. It's all about him. He's the impulse for everything. And the film is sort of like every single scene in the film is something that's happened to us over the past five years. So it's very much like a reflection of the way things are and the way things have been in, in his life. So tell me about the process of, or actually tell me about the conversations that the two of you had, especially in the earlier stages of that relationship, um, how you talked about what you might ultimately explore in the film. Yeah, it's just, it happens so much more organically than that. Like, it's not like we sat down and had this conversation, like, we're going to do this, we're going to explore these themes. It's never, it never, like, we just decided we were going to make a feature film, and we decided we were going to move into it together. And he and I have been living together for the past, like, three and a half years. And as we've been waiting for the film to come together, and, like, the production side of it, we were sort of just exploring all the various things we wanted to do. So if we would meet people on a given night, and we'd have a great time with them, and we'd look at each other and say, okay, this is going to be part of the movie. Like, for instance, the relationship with the little girl. We went to um, a birthday party of a friend of ours, and we'd been there all night. It was, like, midnight. Um, I looked to my left, and all of a sudden, he's nowhere to be found. And I'm like, Where, where'd Kudos go? He's been missing for, like, 45 minutes. And I go into the restaurant, and I see him with that little girl. And the two of them are, like, singing karaoke, and he's, like, at the dinner table with his entire with their entire family and I was like okay that's the relationship right there because it always been a little girl role but it became that little girl um, after that night I'd love to hear more about the place I'd love to hear more about the world that you're physically depicting um, in Italy and how it affected the way you decided to tell this story or the way you decided to explore these characters 
Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was just thinking about that recently because I went back and somehow found the first draft of the script that I had written um, actually while I was in New York. And when I look at that version of the script versus what it is now, it's like I had gone there um, initially like five years ago with like an agenda to say like there are bad things happening in this place. Um, I wanted to pick them. I want to shine light on them. That is my goal. And as I started to live there, that completely changed. Like, I no longer had this agenda to, like, criticize a place I didn't know. The more I got to know the place, the more I got to sort of appreciate, like, the grayness of the entire situation. And that's where more of the character, like, the family dinner table scene started to emerge. That's where, um, you know, I started to come up with the idea of having these, like, um, huge ensemble scenes, like, within, like, you know, that sort of brothel area, like, where they all live. And, like, it just sort of, it just opened up. Like, I've, I went there thinking I would go there and make a movie and leave, and that was five years ago. And, I've been, and I live there now. Like I, my residence is there now. I pay taxes there now. Like yeah. I live in this town now. And it kind of it sort of caught me off guard. It's like, um, it's a place that like seems like it's something outside, and then when you really get involved in it, it's 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 completely different. So switching switching continents to watch this film from the perspective of an American, um, and to see actions or protests that are so specific to also what's happening and what we're experiencing in the United States um, is a profound experience. Can you speak to um, how you think about this film in the context of a broader conversation that's happening in these two places that are your home? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, it sort of touches on something I was trying to say earlier where, you know, you could always understand the impulse of people to riot when someone they are very intimately close to is strangled by the police or shot. That's something you can understand very easily as an emotion. The, the decision of this film was to take, take it from the perspective of someone who knows what happened but doesn't have a direct emotional connection to the person it happened to. So why do we riot? And I think that a lot of that has to do with this feeling of like um, making um, ourselves heard to a very large extent. It's like we are here and um, we are not going to tolerate what's happening. And it's not just about you touching someone I know, it's about like us as a community. And I find that to be very inspirational, like the sort of banding together um, behind a cause, even though it's like not directly touching you. So it makes me want to learn more about your, your own background. Um, you talked about growing up in these two places. Um, more specifically though, I'd like to hear about um, how you decided to become a storyteller, a filmmaker. Um, and and how maybe your growing up in these place in these two places um, has shaped that, or how they've maybe shaped each other, affected each other. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's you know it's sort of what I'm trying to do in cinema is um, is a it's a combination of two very different. You know, I grew up you know watching Adventures in Babysitting when I was in America, and then I grew up like watching every single Visconti film with my grandfather. And I've always loved cinema, like as far as, as, far as I know, like my grandfather was, uh, I should mention, was um, a commercial film director. So while I was in Rome with my family, I would always like be around sets, and it was something I was always very, very fascinated with. Actually, one of my producers um, used to work with my grandfather as well. Um, yeah, his father used to work with my grandfather as well, and as kids, we would like run around the studio, um, always, wanted, always wanting to make films. Um, but I think that like, you know, when, what I consider to be a blessing is that, you know, I try to be neither here nor there. I'm not trying to make something specifically for, like, an American audience or specifically for a European audience. It's basically, I try and, like, um, put together everything that sort of, like, influenced me and affected me and hopefully into something slightly different, something new. What kind of challenges has that created for you, if any? Um, Trying to create, trying not to create something maybe specific to a place. How has that affected your ability to connect specifically with the places that you're exploring? I'll find out soon once this movie gets out into the world. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think that um, the, the advantage to it is that Americans are really happy to come hang out in Italy, and Italians are really happy to work with Americans on a movie. So everyone's happy, even though we're making a low-budget film in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> So when you were growing up on, when you were growing up with a, a parent who has a background in filmmaking, who's a director, um, how, how early on do you remember deciding that you wanted 
to make movies or was it ever just an assumption that you would or something you also rebelled against? Tell me about that, if you remember that. Well, my, so my, it was my grandfather who was a okay, filmmaker oh, and my father always called like filmmaking the family curse. So I never, I never really thought it as a possibility until um, I turned about like 18 and started to have those questions like, okay, high school's over, what am I gonna do? And it seemed obvious that making movies was gonna be the thing to me at that point. So it hadn't been like a direct decision when I was like six. I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have those amazing stories about making films on Super 8 or VHS with like my best friends in my backyard. Like that I never did. But um, it seemed like a very, um, it seemed like I had decided earlier, even though the actual decision was, was when I had gone to university. Tell me about the collaboration um, with folks like, I'm thinking about Dan Janvey and, uh, who was one of the producers and uh, Ben Zeitlin who did music. I mean, tell me about the, the intersection with that group of filmmakers. I mean, I, you know, a lot of um, how I learned how to make films was working with Court 13. I mean, when I, I I'd worked on Beasts of the Southern Wild and that experience was, um, was very important for me because it made me sort of realize that making a film sh- shouldn't feel like a job. It should feel like this like, collective experience where we're all like, working on something because we believe in the film as its own thing. So not as like a means to an end, but if the experience itself is fun and worthwhile, then, then it's all worth it. And you know, hopefully the, the, the product will be better also. Um, so you know, I've also, I went to university with Dan as well and Ben. Um, and when I had left <clears throat> America, because I'd worked on Beast and I left again to work on the short film and they were like very, very supportive. Right away they were like, if you ever need anything, if this ever gets to the point where it can be like a feature, like anything you need will help. Um, and it's that same spirit that carried over um, from when I was working on Beast, for example. There's an entrepreneurial nature to independent production in the States, which is what you're referring to. But, there's, but you also spoke of kind of a similar ethos or approach um, on this film here. But can you make any correlations or distinctions between working independently in the States versus in Europe, specifically in Italy? Are there any contrasts or are they very similar? I think that like because a lot of the crew was similar also I mean because both um, this film um, and Beast were shot in places where most producers don't want to go we kind of had this like independent like feeling sort of like like okay here's the money we're gonna let the kids loose hopefully they'll come back with a film kind of thing so they shared that similarity in the sense of like once the the making of the film was actually underway we kind of felt like we were just amongst friends. It didn't feel like there was like a super supervisorial um, structure on top of us, like making us do things we didn't want to. Did you ever feel like you were telling a story that, especially in this town, like I'm thinking about whether you were telling, whether there were ever moments where you felt like you were telling a story that people didn't want told, or if it was the reverse which is that there was an opportunity or people really saw the opportunity to tell a story that might not not otherwise be told i think it was both i think in in the very beginning um there was a lot of pushback especially within like the immigrant community because they had lived so many years where journalists would come put a camera in their face say that it was important for them to sort of um speak about their story and then disappear and never hear from them again and the repercussions for some of the immigrants who sort of spoke up we're, we're, pretty, we're, pretty, we're pretty drastic. Like, they would lose jobs. Like, people, you know, the, the bosses there clearly don't want anyone to be talking about this illegal immigration situation. So there was a lot of skepticism when we first went down there. But as time went on and people realized that we had lived there and they could stop by our house and that we would be at the same bars as them and that we weren't going anywhere, it completely changed. It came to be the point where, like, we really were um, all making something together. It, that, that line about, like, making a film about you was dissolved after about a year and it's about we're making a film together about this and that was a huge changing point both on the Italian side and on the and with the immigrants and really the last question um, is about impact and that is that you take this movie that you've made in this really organic way in this very specific place and you put it in this very specific place which is a whole different platform and obviously the largest stage for film anywhere in the world and it it will have an impact on the film and the film will also have an impact on the conversation. So to what extent have you thought about um, the way the film will be viewed now that it is in the, on this, in this kind of global 
platform and what do you hope its impact can or should or would be? I mean, I hope that, you know, a lot of the news stories sort of end once the immigrants arrive in Italy. So, you know, it's like they made it, shot of them in Lampedusa in a detention center, and nobody knows what happens after that. There's very few stories that really go into the day-to-day ordinariness of the immigrant experience. And that's what this film, um, that's what, that was my main goal with this film. It wasn't to make a, a film about um, a, a victim immigrant. It's about the, the ordinariness of everyday life and like real humans and how they deal with like, you know, the day-to-day challenges they face. And I hope that people will come to have um, more respect um, for the courage, I think, that a lot of them have to stay here in this country and decide like, even though things are the way they are now, I believe that like one day this really could be my home. Um, that's what I hope happens. Last question. Um, have um, People are still seeing the film for the first time this week, uh, but in the time between it, the lineup being announced and the film coming here to this festival, what have been kind of some of the initial responses that you've had, whether that be from people in Italy specifically or um, people you've encountered, journalists, press, others, to exploring or engaging this issue, this topic, this broader kind of concept? Um, they've been, I mean, a lot of people see the uh, importance of tackling something like this. And I think the, the main comment I'm getting that, that I really appreciate is that like, it doesn't feel like a didactic film or an issue film. And I think that if, if the film were to be too preachy, it would essentially just like create a wall. Because I, I don't believe that audience is like being spoken at. You know, you never want to be told how to think or feel about something. And the thing that I appreciate the most is that people are actually just engaged with this character and this world. And in the end, when they leave, they start to think more about the situation. And I hope that's the response that most audience members have. Um, the film was made at Tarania, and the filmmaker is Jonas Carpignano. Congratulations. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.